Okay, so as we continue our study this morning in the doctrine of sin, I wanted to start by just kind of recapping where we have been up to this point as we launch into this study. And we began this study by asking a very broad question, what is sin? And we followed that study by looking at the origin of sin and then at the imputation of the sin of the first man, Adam, to the rest of his seed, that is, to all of humanity. And then we looked at the degrees of sin and the various categories of sin. And then Will walked us through a few weeks back the specific unpardonable sin that is mentioned in a couple of the gospel narratives. And then over the last two weeks, I walked us through the penalty of sin. And I hope, as I went through specifically those two studies, that your taste buds were being ready for the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. Because you can come out of a study on the penalty of sin and be very despondent if you stay right there and you don't allow it to get to where it's going. That is to what God has done for us in Christ. So there was just a heaviness, a weightiness in thinking about the character of God and his holiness and his justice and his wrath against sinners who continue in their rebellion against him. And we talked about the reality that God has every right to con condemn every person on the face of the planet and send them to hell forever. That was described very vividly as we looked through those passages last week on the reality of hell. And he has the right to do this, but the question that we want to ask is, is that what he did? And the obvious answer to that is no, since we're here this morning, gathered together around the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in him. So that question um, uh, will be kind of the basis of what we'll be discussing this morning. And again, we'll use the Westminster Shorter Catechism as a guide uh, to just guide us through the flow of this lesson. Um, so Question 20 here in the Westminster Catechism uh, says, Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And the answer to that is God having, out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery, and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. So as we've looked at in past weeks, we've seen in Genesis 3 this very grim picture, right, of the account of what happened when man decided to rebel against God and the subsequent curse that God placed on the serpent, on mankind, and on creation for man's rebellion against him. But in the midst of that pronouncement of judgment upon the serpent, God promises that there would be one born of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. We see that in Genesis 3.15, if somebody wants to read that for us. That word bruise there, olam, if you, if you look at it, it can mean crush. So some translations you'll see crush. And in crushing the serpent's head, which is to say defeating him, this one who would be born of woman would undo the works of the serpent and undo the curse. Now, we don't have time this morning to trace out this motif that runs throughout the Old Testament of the seed of the woman conquering the serpent and undoing the curse. Um, but I just want to reference one passage that shows you the expectation of those in the Old Testament very early on in the Scriptures. In other words, um, is this the understanding that people had back in the Old Testament, that this one would come and undo this? And watch what happens when you run through the lineage there in Genesis chapter 5. You have the lineage or the genealogy of Adam. And then you get to this verse talking about Lamech, and look what it says here in, in verses 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Okay, now anybody know what Noah means in Hebrew? Rest. 
Okay, rest. Out of the ground, here's what it's saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. That's the same Hebrew word there, rest. This one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Okay, so Lamech is referring back to what God talked about in Genesis 3, the curse that was upon all of humanity. So there was this expectation of, is this the one? Is this the one who's going to come and undo this? Okay, so, and, and you see that running throughout the Old Testament in types and shadows, which again, I don't have time to really unpack this morning, but there was this expectation that God would fulfill what he promised back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and there was this hope of this coming one. And we'll get to the fulfillment of this coming one, whom the catechism refers to here in our answer as the Redeemer in just a moment. So, although God could have left all men in the estate of sin and misery, awaiting certain and eternal judgment, God chose to save some, whom the Bible refers to as his elect. And I'll just bring up a couple passages that refer to this. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, if somebody can read that for us. Okay, we give thanks because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Okay, so this God electing people, and then Ephesians 1, which Pastor Jack will get to here in the next month or so. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, if somebody would like to read that for us. Okay, so the first blessing that Paul refers to here in verse 4, even as he chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. Okay, so the question that arises from this obviously is, did he elect us because he saw something in us that caused him to make that decision? And the resounding answer from scripture is no. All humanity before him is rebellious. And it was out of his sheer good pleasure that he chose us. There was nothing lovable about us. He didn't look upon us and say, wow, I really would like to bring you into my kingdom. You look really good and you have a lot of talents that I could use for the advancement of my kingdom, right? Listen, we were as ripe for judgment as any sinner in hell. We have to let the weight of that land us. It was solely out of God's good pleasure that he chose us, which is what Paul says here, and a little bit further on in Ephesians 1. Somebody can read that passage for us. Okay, so he predestined us, which is... Another way of saying that, that Paul said earlier on, he elected us or chose us. Okay, And notice here, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, So it was according to the purpose of his will that he did this. Okay, So it wasn't our will. Our will, as we see from the rest of scripture, was to run away from God, not run to God. Okay, so according to the purpose of his will, he did this. God purposed before the foundation of the world to set his electing love upon you. And what, what should that cause within us? Okay? How should we look at the doctrine of election? What it should do is put us on our faces before God and just say, why me? <laughs> right? I mean, I look around and I see people in rebellion against God, and I look at me just plucked from this mass of sinful humanity set apart by God's grace to serve him. And this is the mind-blowing reality, right? So there, it doesn't cause pride. It doesn't, well, yeah, I'm the elect of God. Of course I am. No, right? It's just like, I can't believe it. I can't believe that God chose me. I can't believe I'm in Christ. I'm going to be with him forever in glory. 
And that just causes humility and a great passion for his name to arise within you. At least it should. And if it doesn't, I don't think we really understand that doctrine. Now, election and salvation are not the same thing. God elected us to be saved, but that salvation still had to be accomplished for us. And so how did God do that? In what way did he provide for the sin of his elect that that sin would be atoned for? How does he bring his elect into an estate of salvation out of an estate of misery and sin? And what we see from the catechism here and, of course, the scriptures, he does so by a redeemer. Okay, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. On the back side of your notes there, you'll see question 21 from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Which apparently I forgot to put in my slide here. There it is. Okay. I'll come back to those other passages. So, who is the redeemer of God's elect? The answer, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. That, that would take a long time to unpack <laughs> just that answer right there as we think about the complexity of the two natures in one person. So the Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice here, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this being referenced in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. If somebody would like to read that for us. Okay, so here's the exclusivity of Christ. This harkens back to what Jesus said in John 14, 6, that we'll look to in just a minute here. And there is salvation, listen, in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So you think about the mass of humanity that has lived since the creation of the world and all the names that are there. And this one name stands out above all the rest. That one name is the means by which man can be made right with God. And he alone is able. As Jesus testifies of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? So that just drops one statement and divides himself from everybody else. Okay, so every other religion, any other means by which man is trying to be made right with God, fail. Jesus alone is able. And the question that we want to ask is why? Why is Jesus alone? Why must we come through him to get to the Father? We'll kind of unpack that as we look at these different texts here. So in order to redeem us, to free us from our sin, a price had to be paid. And what was that price? How did God provide for our sin? Well, when you look back at the Old Testament, you think about the sacrificial system that was set up, you would have one day of, year, one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where they would bring the lamb and the lamb would be slain, right? The high priest would lay his hands on the lamb and the lamb would be slain, okay? And the sins of Israel would, would be covered, but only temporarily, which is what the writer of Hebrews continues to bring out, that the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to take away that sin. Okay, so you have those types and shadows in the Old Testament. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and in the Gospel of John, you have John the Baptist see Jesus, and what does he say about him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, to the Jewish ear, the Lamb of God, okay, wait a minute, this, he's going to be slain, but this doesn't make sense, because if he's the Messiah, how is this working, right? Because they weren't putting all the pieces together in that aspect. 
the Lamb of God. So it was, it was, I think, blowing their minds probably in two ways. One was, first of all, the Lamb of God. We know what that means. He's the atoning sacrifice for sin. Secondly is, the Messiah is coming for Israel to defeat our enemies. But you're saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is beyond us. And you see the rest of that through the New Testament as, wow, right? In Acts 13, salvation has come to the Gentiles also. Right? So there was this, there was this expectation that was, that was there. So the Lamb of God comes. And as we read back in Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So then very clear uh, what John was saying, even though they didn't understand it in that moment. Okay? So let's look at a few passages that talk about this price that had to be paid here. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Somebody can read that for us. Okay, so there's that reference back there again, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So you were ransomed, you were rescued, you were redeemed, okay, with the precious blood of Christ, okay? Acts chapter 20, verse 28, remember the context here, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders for the last time, and uh, somebody can read that for us. Okay, which he obtained with his own blood. Again, there's that aspect of the shedding of blood that is necessary and the price that was paid, and therefore it is precious because his blood was shed for his people. That's a good passage there also on the deity of Christ. Okay, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, so that's just in passing. That was a freebie. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing his eternal redemption. Okay, so very important there. The writer of Hebrews uses that word eternal three times in the span of four verses from Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. And what he's getting at there is the eternal aspect of redemption versus the temporary aspect that only the blood of bulls and goats could provide. Right? It was only a temporary covering. Come back next year. Next year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Let's do it again. Next year after that, let's do it again. Right? So it wasn't sufficient. It had to be done every year. And then Christ comes in once for all, slain, secures for his people an eternal redemption. See this also in Titus 2 verse 14, if somebody would like to read that for us. Okay, so Titus uses this, this mindset that he encompasses the whole of Christ in this aspect of the price that has been paid, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Okay, so this aspect of redemption. And then a couple other passages that I actually want you to turn to. Uh, look with me at Romans chapter 3, if you would. Romans chapter 3, and let's look at verses 21 through 26. Reading from the ESV here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, okay, so there's that aspect of redeeming, through the re redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so verses 24 through 26 really kind of the essence of this aspect of redemption. And notice verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. When you look back at the Old Testament, you had, if you remember, you had two lambs that were brought forward on the Day of Atonement. One was slain, the other one was sent off into the wilderness. Okay? Right? That, that Israel's sins, it was symbolic of Israel's sins being forgotten, right? Being sent off. So one is, we, we would say, is expiation, just the placing of the sins upon the head of the goat, and he's gone. Okay? The other one is propitiation, which means the lamb is actually going to be slain. It has to be slain. Because again, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So Paul uses this terminology here in a way that would conjure up that mindset. Okay? The propitiation, okay? that means he was being slain, he was being brought forward. The wrath of God was being transferred from the people onto the sacrifice. And this is what God did. God put Jesus on public display. That's what he talks about here. Whom God put forward, who put on display. You want to see how I feel about sin You want to see how holy I am and just I am and wrathful I am and loving and merciful and gracious I am? So all of the attributes of God are seen at the cross. He puts Jesus forward and he slays him as it said in Isaiah 53 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. When we ask that question, who who killed Jesus? Ultimately, we say God did. God put him forward. And Jesus went willingly, right? There's no struggle there. I lay down my life of my own accord, he says. Okay, so that, that's, that's the mindset you have there in how God provides for our sin. And as Paul says here, this was to show God's righteousness. I'm righteous. I can't overlook sin. I don't just say I forgive you and bring you into my presence. If I don't deal with that sin, I'm unjust because I'm a holy God and that's an offense against me. So he puts Christ forward and he says, I'm righteous and just, and this is how I'm also the justifier, right? So it's, it's an amazing reality how you see the wrath of God and the mercy of God come together at one place at the cross. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so I think that's a really good passage that helps us understand how God provides for our sin. Another one, just one verse that you're all familiar with, I'm sure, that really just summarizes the gospel of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, and how God has provided for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So at the cross, the Father treats the Son as if he lived my godless, wicked life. Paul pours out all of his wrath upon his Son. And at that, he also gives me the perfect life of Christ. Okay? So my guilt, my sin goes to him. His righteousness comes to me. So now the Father looks upon me as if I've lived the perfect life of Christ. Yes. Sure. Yeah. 
that's a complex question, but let me just say this generally over that. If a person is professing to be a Christian and there is a sin that is brought to their attention and it could be substantiated, right? There's no like question of was this a sin, was this not a sin? Um, and they're unwilling to repent of it. I think that's going to definitely bear witness that they may not genuinely be a Christian. Yeah. The situation is just that he's repentant. He's not doing what he used to do. Right. He's not, his, his mentality has changed because of Christ. Yes. But the person, so, but he lives, he walks around my other family, you know, my other family member, as if he never did that sin, period. Mm -hmm. So when he walks into, I think there's definitely a consideration aspect that has to be brought to his attention um, with something like that. But I'd be happy to talk to you a little bit more because it sounds pretty complex. So I'd like to, before I just kind of give a blanket statement, um, know a little bit more about the situation and maybe seek to help you kind of think through that a little bit. But, but to your point, if, if somebody is um, claiming to be a Christian and they're aware of sin that they either have done in the past or are, are doing, and they're unwilling uh, to repent of it. They're unwilling to turn away from that. And I think that has to definitely be something that's brought to the table on whether or not that person is really a Christian. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that um, we don't struggle with sin. There's a difference between struggling with sin and just diving headlong into sin and living in it and not caring and looking back and... Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think there's a consideration factor that you would have to bring about to him. I think that's a discussion. Sure, absolutely. Right, right, I understand that, yeah, yeah. And I, I would agree. I think that is inconsiderate, definitely. Yeah, good, good point. Okay, Ryan. Question. Yes. So, transaction where Christ takes our sin. Yes. Yep. If someone says, with Christ being on our sin, how can he still be perfect? Would the answer be because Christ died, our sin is paid for, and yeah. his, his infinite holiness isn't stained? Yeah, well, it, it, it's certainly not stained at all, and, and I think Paul mentions that there in that passage. He became sin who knew no sin. So, just as, let's go back to the Old Testament, just as that lamb was brought forward without spot or without blemish, that lamb was not dying for its own imperfection, right? The lamb was being slayed because of the imputed imperfections that was placed upon it symbolically through the sins of the people. And the same thing is true with Christ. Christ isn't dying because there's, not, because there's anything wrong in him or there's anything unholy in him, but he's being treated as such. So God is imputing that sin, sin to him. So it's not a stain against his character in any way. It's an indictment against our sinfulness and a provision of God's love for us. Um, so yeah, so he bears that wrath. He pays for it. And the reality that he rose from the dead um, shows us that he didn't have any sin. Because if he did have sin, he would still be in the grave. Uh, so God the Father was totally pleased with the sacrifice that he made his perfect law-keeping life, his sin-atoning death, and through that, he rises victoriously from the dead and conquers the grave. So yeah, there's nothing, it, it, it's not a stain on him when our sin is placed upon him. He's being, that it's imputed to him, it's not his own. Okay, okay good, good questions. Um, 
So what we see from these passages is that Jesus redeemed us through his atoning sacrifice, and through this, he rescued us out of the snare of the devil, as we looked at last week. So before our redemption, we were taken captive by Satan to do his will. But Christ has now rescued us from that through his work on our behalf. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, I think speak well to this end, if somebody can read that for us. So, so here, here it is, right, this record of debt. I, I love this passage. It's just so clear, right? So this record of debt, all your rebellion, okay? So you're born in Adam, you're sinful by nature, and then you're compounding that through all your rebellion against God. So there's this record of debt that stands against you. And at the cross, Christ takes that record of debt and cancels it. So there's nothing there. There's no charge. You enter the courtroom, there's nothing here. You're not guilty. You're righteous. All you have is perfection, and that is given through Christ. And through that, notice verse 15. Through the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. Not speaking about human rulers and authorities, speaking about rulers and authorities in high places in the heavenly realms and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in the cross. Okay, so this aspect that, that Jesus defeats the devil through the cross, right? Just as, as the writer of Hebrews talks about this as, aspect of, it's through death that he delivers us out of the fear of death. So he conquers death through death and through that delivers us out of the bondage of Satan. So, as we see from these passages, the death of Christ is vital to us being found right in the sight of God. But his death, listen, his death was acceptable in the sight of God to take away the penalty for sin only because his life was acceptable to God. Jesus had to fulfill the law of God on our behalf because we could never fulfill that law on our own. Okay, so that's, that's the way that God, so when you think about God providing for us in Christ, don't just think about the death of Christ, right? Just don't, don't run right to the cross and say, that's where he provided for our sin. That's certainly a massive component of it. But that death would have not meant anything had he not fulfilled the law of God first on our behalf, okay? As we see here in John eight twenty nine, Jesus testifying of himself, And he, that is the Father who sent me, is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Okay? Nobody else on the face of the planet can make that statement. Okay? Every thought, every motive, every word, every action, God the Father said, I am pleased with that for his whole life. What a beautiful reality that is. So Jesus earns for us the righteousness that we could never attain for ourselves. And so that this can be said that God is pleased with us now. He looks upon us and he's pleased with us because of what the Son has accomplished on our behalf. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus testifies, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fulfill them. So his death is acceptable to take away our sins only because his life was acceptable to fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law perfectly. And again, as I just mentioned, his resurrection validates that both his life and death were acceptable in God's sight. And so God provided for us in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Now, another way that we see Scripture talk about this acceptable provision that God has supplied for us in Christ is to declare it 
by the way of being brought out of union with Adam and into union with Christ. Now we've discussed this in a few different ways throughout our study in the doctrine of sin, but I want to conclude this morning by pointing us back to Romans 5, where again we see how we were brought into this sinful state and how God delivered us out of it. So go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. And I just want to make a few comments here on this passage as we think about God's provision for us in Christ, which is really what Romans 5 is all about, right? We go to that to talk about the sin of Adam being imputed to his uh, seed, that is, all of humanity, but that's, that's not Paul's main point. Paul brings that reality in because he's going to highlight what Christ has, has done. Um, in verses 15 through 17 here in Romans 5, Paul is, is continuing this line of thought that he started with in verses 12 through 14, the topic of Adam being a type of Christ, a type of him who was to come. But rather than showing how they're alike, he shows us three ways in which they're different and how the results of their work is different. And listen, he's doing this again so that we can feel the weight of just how amazing the grace of God is for us in Christ. That's what he's seeking to highlight, how God has provided for sinners like us in sending his son. So look with me here at verse 15, and what we see here is this first contrast. And it says this in verse 15, but the free gift is not like, so here's the contrast, it's not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So if you remember back in Genesis 2, right, God gives this express command to Adam to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God provides everything that Adam needed to live a life of enjoying God and making much of him by spreading his image all over the world. But when Adam rebels, he gets justice, and so do we in him. Justice is what we deserve, right? It's not what we want, right? So we have to be careful there, right? We, we don't want justice in that sense. I, I don't want God to be just towards me in dealing with my sin, or else that means I'm going to hell forever, Right? So God would have been perfectly just to condemn Adam and all of his offspring for eternity. But listen, amazingly, he steps in with grace for some. That is, for his elect. In Jesus Christ, God has given us what we don't deserve, namely eternal life and enjoyment of himself forever. In addition to this, it's important to note that Jesus Christ, he doesn't merely restore us to the place that Adam had with God before the fall. He secures for his people an eternal redemption that can never be changed, as we looked at from Hebrews. Listen, there is no possibility, if you are in Christ, that you will ever be condemned or cut off from God. God's not looking upon your performance and saying, one more sin, and that's it, and I'm done with you. Because we would all walk out of here sinners this morning, condemned before God. Jesus doesn't just take us back to the Garden of Eden so that we can just start over and, and try again. Rather, what Jesus does is he, he takes us where Adam failed to take us, into a state of eternal joy with no possibility of being cast out of God's presence. That's the, that's the great news of the gospel. And that is how God has provided for us in Christ there will be no excommunication for the people of God who are truly his. So we're very thankful for that. Now that, that point leads into verse 16 here in verse 5, or chapter 5, where he says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. As I've said previously, Adam's sin plunged himself and all of his offspring, which is every person, into condemnation. And again, we think about what that says about the holiness of God, right? 
So here's one act of rebellion. And from that one act of rebellion, every other aspect of rebellion has flowed. So that one act of rebellion is the root from which all other acts of rebellion are the fruit. Right? We, we think about horrific things happening in this world, like what happened in Paris a little over a week ago, what happened in Africa just a few days ago. All of that is birthed out of the reality of this one act of rebellion against God in the garden long ago. That's an amazing reality, isn't it? It tells you about the seriousness of the holiness of God and the justice of God and the curse that God has placed on humanity. And listen, you, you know, we, we, we see things like that. We see images with the technology that we have nowadays and we see things like Paris and things like that. But listen, that's happening all over the world. That's just not getting publicized in a lot of places as it is in others. That, that what, what's happening in these places is, is a snapshot. It's a drop in the bucket. It's a, a grain of sand on the seashore of sin, of all the sin that has taken place in this world. And so this, this one act of rebellion has brought forth all these other acts of rebellion. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation for all. But, but watch what Paul says here. God declared that Adam's rebellion and condemnation would be accounted to us. We're judged guilty in Adam for his one sin. But listen, by the grace of God, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God declares us righteous despite all of our sins. Every sin you have ever committed, if you are in Christ, God forgives. He takes away, he washes it all away through what Christ has accomplished and that's why Paul says here, this, this is the amazing reality between these two. You have that word one there in verse 16, right? That one man, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So Christ didn't come into this world to live a perfect life of obedience to his Father, to bear the wrath of God for just one sin of one person. Rather, what the scripture tells us is that he came into the world, lived a perfect life, and bore the wrath of God for the sins of a multitude, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all peoples and tribes and languages. As Revelation 7 says, those who will stand before the throne of God dressed in the robe of the righteousness of Christ, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And really, I mean, how this should cause our hearts to soar. Just think of your own life over the last week. Think of the thoughts you've had. Think of the words you've said. Think of the things that you've done that are worthy of eternal wrath. And if you're in Christ, God covers every single one of them. And as you continue to live your life and you continue to fall short of the glory of God and you continue to rebel against him, his mercy and his grace will continue to follow you all the days of your life. And it will take you right home to glory where you will stand perfect in his sight because of what Christ has accomplished. And finally, in verse 17, Paul gives this third contrast. Take a look at this. He says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we see Paul contrasting here the reign of death through Adam and the reign of life through Jesus Christ. And again, as we think about the reign of death, we don't have to look far to see the stark reality of that, right? All of us have been affected in one way or another by the reality of death. But that's not the point that Paul wants to focus on. He's using that reign of death as a contrast because he wants us to see that as sure as death reigned through that one man, just as sure life reigns through this man, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. As the writer of Hebrews says here, and this was the passage that I was referring to earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, if somebody can read that for us. So that, that's what I was talking about before. Death has been defeated in the death of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the blessing for the believer and the hope that we have in Christ is that we will reign in life with him forever. And if you're a believer, you've begun to experience that already when you were converted, when you were brought to Christ, and and you taste deeply of the eternal life that God has given, and now your heart's desire is longing for that day where you'll behold him as he is, and you'll enter into that state of eternal life that we don't know yet. There will be no struggle. It'll be fully realized at the consummation of his kingdom. And this is what enables Paul to say in Philippians 1, that to die is gain. I mean, that's a totally counter-human statement, Right? Nobody says death is gain unless you believe there's something better beyond. And there is. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And then Paul says later on in Philippians 1.23, to depart and be with Christ is far better. That's why death is gain. It's because I get to be with Christ. I get to enter into him. Now, we're all going to die physically unless the Lord returns beforehand. But the great news of the gospel and the work of the one man, Jesus Christ, is that, listen, on that last day, we're going to rise up out of those graves and be in glorified bodies, entering into the new heavens and the new earth to enjoy him forever. Death no longer has dominion over us. Thomas Watson, if you remember from my quote last week, I love that statement that he made where he says that through Christ, death is unstinged, right? The sting of death is taken away through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the passage that I want to close with this morning as we think about the penalty of sin, but also God's provision for sin. 1 Corinthians 15, oh death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's God's provision for our sin, and what a glorious provision it is. Amen. All right, any thoughts? Any other passages that were running through your mind there as we were talking about God's provision for sin? Yeah, Isaac. Amen. Amen. That's good. Good stuff. Good. Dean? Correct, right. 
So they were all types and shadows leading up to the fulfillment of what, of what Christ would do. So Christ is the, uh, the epitome of the Day of Atonement. All, all the days of atonement were leading up to this one day of, of atonement. Yeah, yeah, because those sins were only temporarily covered. They weren't, and this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that in, in the former times God overlooked sin, even though he dealt with it, he only dealt with it on a temporary level. And so they weren't completely atoned for. And this is why Paul says in Galatians 3 that Abraham was looking forward to the gospel, right? And then you see that in John chapter 8, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And then Paul talks about in Galatians 3 that Abraham believed the gospel. Um, so the Old Testament saints, through these sacrifices, those who truly understood it, what it was, because there was a lot who didn't, that were just kind of going through the ritual, um, those, they were looking forward, trusting in the promise of the one who was to come. We're on the other side of the cross, and we're looking back to the promise of what God has done. So all the focus falls on the cross and looking forward to what, what Christ was going to do. But yeah, I mean, if Christ never comes then we're left in our sins, right? We, we don't have anything, but, yeah, so, okay. All right, good stuff. Praise the Lord, he did send him. He did come, and he did accomplish for us what we could never do for ourselves. So let's, let's pray and uh, close out this morning. Father, we're very thankful. Um, I mean, words fail to adequately express the gratitude that we ought to have for what you have done for us in your son, uh, that you didn't leave us in our sin as we deserve. We are those who have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light. Um, and I pray, Lord, that it, it would breed a spirit of humility and thankfulness no matter what we're going through in our lives, Lord. The greatest dilemma in the history of the world has been solved through Christ. And that is how a sinful man or a sinful woman can stand right in the sight of a holy God. We thank you for sending him. Thank you for his perfect law-keeping life that secured our righteousness for us. Thank you for his sin-atoning death that has taken all of our wrath. There is no wrath that remains. There is no condemnation that remains for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a glorious reality. And thank you for the promise that one day we will enter into the fullness of the salvation that we have been given even now. And so I ask that you would just strengthen our hearts with that. And as Paul mentioned, as you inspired him to say, may we live lives worthy of this gospel that we have been given. Help us to that end, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.